So, here we are. Effectively, the first episode. You know, I've said that three times, and the best part is, there will be a fourth first episode as we go forward. Oh, TOS, ladies and gentlemen. But this was the first one produced under the weeklies format. They put out the cage issues. They put out War No Man Was Gone Before. Okay, sure, we'll pick you up, we'll make you a weekly show. Awesome. Then they made this episode. Interesting pick for a first one. Since it seems to be... Well, it seems to hit that balance that Star Trek often tried for back in TOS, which was, you know, science fiction, action, suspense, drama, but also character and interpersonal interactions. And, of course, most importantly of all, that optimism, that sort of constructive sci-fi thing I mentioned last time. Uh, Joseph... Sargent? Sergeant? I can't be Sergeant. <laughs> is the gentleman who directed this episode. You may know him from having done absolutely nothing else for Star Trek ever. This is going to be kind of a trend for a little bit, by the way, uh, because they tend to bounce directors around. But he did have a very significant in influence on the series, which I'll talk about later. But they were like, okay, hang on. We want George Takei to be involved, but we don't need an astrophysicist every episode. Why don't we just go ahead and shuffle him down to the helmsman slot? Because you always need someone piloting the ship, right? That way Sulu can be in every episode. Cool, okay, that's that problem solved. Whew, that was tough. I already mentioned the Doctor stuff, and bringing in DeKelly was something that, you know, obviously they were very interested in doing. Uh, Uhura is an interesting one. So they brought in Michelle Nichols. I have read unconfirmed reports that she got the role because she was one of Jean's lovers. Now, I'm going to say this as neutrally as I can to leave all my personal bias and per opinion on the matter out of this, but it's worth noting that I can only verif verify this via one source, and I don't really think that's acceptable to call it an absolute truth. However, given that Roddenberry tended to have a lot of women that he had as lovers at this point in history, and that that was something that was relatively well known, it would not surprise me all that much if that's why she got the job. This would also, in several ways, explain why her role in season one is so muted. Point in fact, Nichelle Nichols thought several times about quitting, and has repeated many times in many interviews her desire to bow out of Star Trek during season one's production because... She had nothing to do. This is this is even parodied in Galaxy Quest with uh, Sigourney Weaver's character. Now, the uh, thankfully she didn't. Thankfully we did keep her on, and we got her. They actually went out of their way to make her more of a character in season two and three. We'll see that when we get there. And of course we got to see her in the films, so that's awesome. But it's interesting to think about given the time. But you're probably thinking, well, why didn't she just quit? According to her, this is her own words, Martin Luther King Jr. is the reason she didn't quit. Personally, by the way. She actually talked with the man, and the man basically said, no, 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 no. We, we need you there. We need you on that bridge. We need people to see that that's okay and that that's normal. So she stuck with it. Interesting reason. I only bring this up because this sounds very familiar to anybody who studied the history of TNG Season 1, and Lieutenant Tasha Yar, and Denise Crosby's obvious aggravations with that role. Yeah. Anywho, this is also when Grace Whitney joins the show. She is, of course, the one who plays Yeoman 
Rand. She'll... God, there's... I'm going to avoid talking about Grace Whitney's behind-the-scenes... Uh, let me rephrase it. About her real-life experiences. Because it's not a particularly fun story. And that sucks. Unlike the situation with the gentleman uh, last week who uh, suffered the, the breakdown and got taken care of, uh, to my knowledge, no one ever really took care of Whitney, which is a damn shame, since she is, by all accounts, an awesome woman who, you know, is legit. We... <sighs> Nevertheless, at the time, uh, she really wanted to be part of a weekly show. And understandably so, given where television was at at the time. Having that kind of a regular contract, that was basically guaranteed income. And guaranteed income, as an actor, is extremely useful. So... She, she signed up, and she was, in fact, the very first cast member to sign up for the show once it became a weekly show as of this episode. Uh, there's a bajillion changes to this from the previous stuff. Spock's eyebrows, the skirts, the uniform changes, the rank insignia, the term phaser shows up here. A bunch, bunch, a bunch, a bunch of stuff was changed over, and this, is, this then kind of sidles this in as the first actual episode. It's kind of funny, because the, the, if you look at the broadcast order, the way it bounces around is so weird, because it bounces around in production order, so things just suddenly go back to being the way they were before they codified them, and then go back to being the way they were after they are codified them, and it's just all over the place. Yet another reason I tend to prefer production order. It's, but seriously, imagine watching this. And then watching, uh, you know, well, actually, it would be more like watching uh, Man Trap and then watching Where No Man Has Gone Before and being like, wait, what? Who's that guy? Where's McCoy? Anyways, <clears throat> naturally, no one cared about that back in the day. Nobody gives a damn about continuity. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> uh, um, let's see. I had one of the, oh, right, right, right. Uh, you're probably wondering why this episode is 10th in broadcast order, even though it was first in production order. Well, that's obvious. When I say production order, I should clarify that that means filming, that that's when they sit down and they write and produce and make the episode. But then there's post. Now, post is something I've basically never had to talk about with regards to it being an issue scheduling-wise in any of the other Star Treks I've ever covered. Because even when there's a massive amount of post or tons of special effects, like it happened in uh, Broken Bow over in Enterprise, or some of the later DS9 stuff, or some of the later Voyager stuff, it was just an itch. It was talking about how they accomplished the effects and how they brought in multiple teams and blah, blah, blah. But in this case, this is kind of not that. This is the 60s. They're still trying to figure out a lot of this stuff. So what ended up happening is the post was taking too long. And the episode wasn't ready to go when it was time to schedule it. So it got pushed back, and back, and back, and back, until it was the 10th episode. I think it's 10th. I don't know. Of course I don't. Wait, I know. I'll use this. Pretty sure it's the 10th episode. Give me just a moment. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm right. I'm 10th. 10th episode. That's how long it took them to finish the effects on this episode. It's good stuff, though. The One of the things that's impressive, even in the original, is when the first Federation ship shows up, it just gets bigger and 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 bigger. They did a good job with that with the remaster, too. Of course, this makes this the another Star Trek first 
uh, an enemy with a big ship, <laughs> which will be a very common, very common trend in Star Trek over the next 40 years. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's rewind a bit and talk about the early thing. There's this overshot headshot they do. We start at Spock Station, then it kind of zooms up, kind of pans over, and then zooms in on the order being followed. It's a really minor thing, but it's a good shot, especially for the time. There's this mention, several mentions about their mission here to explore new life. We're the first ones to get this far. What is our was our stated intent? Blah, 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 blah. Um, it's it's good stuff, and it does help to establish the, the five-year mission, the intent of what Star Trek is, at least at this point in time, and what the Enterprise is doing way out in deep space. This will obviously bounce around a little bit in future episodes, but this early on, it's a good thing to get to get out there so people are aware of it. You know, what are you doing in space? We're exploring. And that, of course, helps set the tone for the entire franchise, or at least the series. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. So then we see the cube. I was looking up music stuff here, uh, because I wanted to figure out who wrote this song. I figured it was Alexander Courage. I was wrong. Uh, and that sent me down a spiral of looking up stuff about Alexander Courage, which is interesting to read about. The man obviously did several bits of work. He did work for The Man Trap. Uh, he did work for Where No Man Has Gone Before. And he did work for The Cage. And, of course, you know, duh, na, 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 that's him. But, uh, well, as you may or may not be aware, uh, Roddenberry or his lawyer or both, we're not sure, uh, insisted that Roddenberry write lyrics for the song so that he could claim uh, royalties and, and not pay Courage as much. Which is either, like, slimy scummy or overtly scummy, depending on how you think of that one. It actually pissed Courage off so much that he almost refused to ever do any work with Star Trek again. I say almost. He actually owed Justman a little bit. So he he came in for a couple of episodes in, I think, season two, uh, just as a favor, really. And he also worked with Goldsmith on some of the main themes that would eventually become the TNG main theme. But when I say worked with, I mean, like, he was a consultant and gave him, gave him some ideas, that kind of thing, not actually involved in the process. In later years, he he tried to downplay the whole thing, but from all accounts, he was livid back in the day, and I don't blame him. Either way, he did not do this music, which is a shame, because it's, I'd say, probably the third or fo fourth most memorable song in TOS for me. I know that sounds strange, because, you know, it's TOS. And there's there's some good songs in TOS, don't, don't mistake me. You know, there's the song that plays during a mock time, and there's, you know, the classic, you know, exploration music. But, you know, that, that whole tension thing that shows up when the cube is there. It's very memorable. It's very noteworthy. And I've remembered it ever since I first heard it. And I'm sure, curious how many of you can just hear it in your head right now. Either way, I wasn't actually really able to figure out who the heck wrote that song, which is a damn shame. So let's just move on to The Cube. What's funny is part of the point of this is something that was completely lost on me until I read it was the intended point from the, the words of the author whose name I can't remember right now. But it's okay, because I have this bookmark for a reason. What's your name? Ah, yeah, hang on, just a second. When I say I have it bookmarked, I mean I have it bookmarked for the wrong episode, because it's the next episode. Uh, Jury Soul. He's the one. He wanted to, there's to be this big thing about, like, oh my god, there's a cube in space. 
that's not natural. That's not an asteroid or, or some kind of stellar phenomenon. Something had to have made that. But it's not communicating, and it's just following us like this deadly thing. And that was intended to be the suspense, the, the dra- drama of the episode is, what is that? And what's it doing here? And how do, and oh my god, it's following us, you know. And I'll admit, all of that was completely lost on me because apparently I'm an idiot. Who knew? <clears throat> we get a captain's log, totally unnecessary. We also have a brief thing between Spock and Bailey, bringing up the fact that Spock doesn't have human emotions. It's okay, it's okay. Unlike last time, it's only brought up once, and it's a lot smoother in, in the dialogue and the way it's being exposited, so I'm completely with it. You'll also notice that uh, Bailey keeps giving advice, and he also jumps on the wrong order when given. To be fair, I remember that. So Kirk is completely unflappable, and there's this... There's this neat little scene where they're trying to escape from the thing. And it's worth noting that they keep doing this thing where they cut between Kirk and Shatner's just sitting there cool as a cucumber. And it cuts to Bailey, who's just kind of freaking out a little bit. Staring. Staring at the screen. And he's ordered to give phasers, and he's actually slow. He he doesn't respond in time. He's like, oh, God, right, right. Phasers, here you go. Um, And so they destroy the thing. This then leads to a really good character moment. Uh, Kirk goes over to Spock and asks him his opinion on things, and Spock gives it, and Kirk says, okay, this is when he mentions the mission again. And Spock says, sir, have you ever wondered about the inefficiency of asking me my opinion when you've already made up your mind? And Kirk just says, it's okay, it gives me emotional security. And Spock just kind of gives him a look, right? (laughs) An amused look, but a look nonetheless. Then he goes into the turbo lift with McCoy. I've talked about the big three. Uh, I Okay, so from my perspective, I've recorded all the Enterprise stuff already. So from where I'm at as recording this, I'm done up to season two of Enterprise. And I bring that up because one of the things I'm going to be bringing up is a lot of the, the big three. Now, Star Trek has this concept off and on about the big three. It, it basically boils down to the characters that get the most focus and the most time. This isn't always true. Voyager kind of bounces in and out of this. Deep Space Nine kind of bounces in and out of this. But it was a big thing in TNG, and it's a big thing on Enterprise, because it was a big thing on TOS. Kirk, Spock, McCoy. I like the other characters, don't mistake me. Scott's actually already been awesome, even though he's only had like two or three lines. Each one of them has been spot on and awesome. Sulu has been legit up front. Uhura hasn't been given a chance to shine yet. But the big three are awesome. And I think another reason why the big three became a thing was because all three actors have a really natural chemistry together, which is hysterical given all accounts and interviews about how much the other two couldn't stand Shatner back in the day. It's okay. By by several accounts, they did actually manage to, to smooth over that relationship over the years, especially when Shatner grew a brain and apologized and tried to be you know, less pig-headed about things. Um, just to be as blunt as it can. But I will ever and always give credit to someone who has a big ego, realizes it, and then brings it back down and apologizes for it. And that is by basically every account what Shatner did. Right up there with uh, Adam West is actually another example of that. Uh, we could also mention um, the Marvel darling, whose name I can't think of all of a sudden as an example. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. The point is, the three gel well beautifully. It's actually kind of funny considering everything I just mentioned. Eleven years 
Look at him. He's the he's the eleven you from eleven years ago. He calls it. They both call him Jim, by the way. They're the, they're the only ones who have that automatic familiarity with him, and they start speculating and they start debating. You know what's going on. And this whole time, Kirk just looks like he is exhausted. Just you know, he's just kind of uh, okay. And even when he's moving, he's just kind of leaning against things like ugh. And this whole time he's talking about how he is unflinching and how much he's going to push everyone else. And the unspoken thing there is that the whole reason why he's pushing everyone else so hard is because he is already pushing himself that hard without hesitation. There's even This is even earlier in the script if you're paying attention because he's getting that physical, right, from McCoy. And McCoy deliberately doesn't tell him that there's a red alert because... He knew that Kirk would immediately respond to it, even while in the middle of something extremely physical. Now, you might say, well, of course he's going to respond to it, but it's part of that idea that Kirk is pushing himself to his limit and therefore is also expecting that of everyone else. This also leads... Oh, by the way, just for added uh, flavor, this whole time we're listening to the battle drill in the background as they're, they're reciting it and giving their reports and all that fun stuff. Then Rand shows up. You know, woo, I'm sorry, that's, that's my first thought, was woo, and then I and I thought about all the stuff that happened in real life, and the woo just kind of died out, so I had to... <sighs> Anyways, she shows up. Uh, new diet plan, I thought you were aware of that. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a good salad. I just, you know, put some barbecued meat on top, it's not that hard. Anyways, um, so he gets the salad, you know, rabbit food, blah, blah, blah. It's a good little tidbit. She even gets a good scene later on. It's a really minor tidbit. But she gets a bit where she comes onto the bridge. And I thought the galley was out of power. Oh, I just used a phaser to heat up the coffee. Here you go. That's actually good. And you'll notice everyone has at least one good line in this episode, except Uhura. I know I'm supposed to troll that Uhura. It's, it's hard for me to do so. Please forgive me. But I just... <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> this is also, by the way, so when we, this is when we actually interact with the real First Federation ship, uh, which apparently, uh, thanks to some clever math, uh, is seven times as dense as the air at sea level. If you're not getting the point, uh, that's really, really not dense. <laughs> Just, you know, given the enormous size of the thing. I was going to give a big joke here about, I hope you enjoy the First Federation because we never hear from them again. Actually, we do. I looked it up. They are mentioned once after this in an off in an off the cuff line in Deep Space Nine's episode Facets by Quark, who mentions that they're trading with them. So there you go. The First Federation are part of continuity. Oh my god. So, <clears throat> uh, they have the threat leveled. There's this really great bit. Uh, Kirk hears the threat, and he goes to Spock and says, So, have we been recording? Spock's like, Yeah, of course we have. Kirk's like, Okay. Launch the buoy. Make sure nobody else ever comes over here. First thought. First thing he does when he's threatened is try to make sure to send out a warning to ensure that no one else ever threatens the region. Once again, just Kirk being Kirk here. I know that's really more on the script than anything else, but it is, it is cool to see. So... Spock finds a picture of, of oh my god, it's it's Herbert Solo. 
sorry, that's a that's a dumb inside joke. But he finds the picture of <clears throat> Balok, and this is when Bailey loses it. McCoy comes in a little bit later and says, you're pushing him too hard. And he's like, I'm, I, I want to put this in record as stress. And Kirk's is like, no, this is stupid. And McCoy's like, I'm going to fight you on this one. And Kirk's like, I don't, I don't have time for this. You want to bluff me, Doc? This isn't a bluff. The reason I like this bit is because it shows the stress of being on a ship on the frontier, which should be really, really stressful. In fact, having just gone through the first two seasons of Enterprise, it's kind of something that's really lacking in Enterprise. Everyone there is just completely on top of things and has no trouble with anything. There should be freakouts. There should be people going, you know, having issue and, and not really coping properly. They are, they are substantially more on the frontier than these guys. And it is Bailey here who is actually losing it. Now, I know what you could say. You'd say, well, a trained Starfleet officer probably shouldn't be losing it and, and suffering from stress. And while that is certainly true to an extent, at the same time, I feel like it's a human element that's been missing in Star Trek. If only there was, like, some kind of ship that was really on the frontier, in the total unknown, all by itself, completely cut off from everything else, and had non-Starfleet crew members. That way we could have our cake and eat it, too, because we could have people and shows the stressors of that situation and the dangers of it and showing how they cope with it. And that could be a part of the characterization of the ship. If only there were a show that would do that. If it's not obvious, I really like the what they do with Bailey in this episode. He, he doesn't have a character arc so much as he has characterization. This is someone who's not ready. This is someone who is not as as acclimated to this situation as anyone else is. And it shows. And it helps add to him. It's a shame that we will never see him again, because he goes on the First Federation ship. Bye, Bailey! And we can make up whatever story we want there about him, why he never shows up ever again. But the point being, that kind of human flawed element is one of the things that I actually really like about TOS by memory, and I am seeing demonstrated as we're going through the show already. We're up to episode three, and I'm already seeing this. It's just a shame. Maybe, maybe you know, a Star Trek show that doesn't... Maybe it's it's kind of people who are not the big figures, people who are not the captain, and like kind of a, a below-decks thing, something like that, might be able to flesh out the show a bit more and show more of this human flaw kind of thing. I don't know. I'm just spitballing at this point. Who would ever do a show like that? Anyways. <clears throat> so... They talk about chess. There's this really good character scenes. It's actually two, but they're they're back to back. Spock mentions chess, and when checkmate happens, the game's over. And you know, Kirk says that that's your recommendation, and Spock says, and I'm gonna fail at what Nimoy does, but he says I'm so, and he barely gets the S out in I'm sorry, before he chops himself off. And says, no, I've, I've got nothing else. Then, later on, there's this really subtle bit where Spock kind of glances around and sees everyone is super tense and staring at the view screen. Then he mentions his parents, just, just so someone can take a jab at him and lower the, the overall stress level, in this case, Scotty. Really good character moments there. Little subtle stuff, but good stuff. 
So then, for 3 minutes and 12 seconds, they escape from the tractor beam of the smaller ship. Now, <laughs> I suppose I should mention the bluffing thing, which is once again a very Kirk thing to do. In line with my earlier comment about flaws, Kirk doesn't know this is going to work. He doesn't do this with confidence. He does this with... Well, actually, no, he does do this with confidence. Excuse me, that's the wrong word. He doesn't do this with certainty. He doesn't say to do this thinking this is the win button. He does this because this is what he's got left. And that is very Kirk. Just like it was last time. Well, I'm outgunned and outmoded. Um, let's try this. And when he does it, he executes it flawlessly. But there's at no point is there that feeling that he is going to win. In fact, there's this wonderful bit, another good character bit for Spock, where he mentions it was well played. It was nevertheless well played. In other words, it was a good idea, even though it didn't work. And Kirk's just like, yep, that's, that's what it is. So then Kirk talks to Spock. Uh, Spock's like, can I come with? And Kirk's like, no. No, if this is a trap, or if I'm wrong, you get to stay here. And then they go over and then they see Clint Howard! Brother of Ron Howard, who we've discussed earlier this year. But most importantly of all, someone who is a long-standing Trek veteran, as is obvious, based on his presentation here when he was just a kid. Clint Howard, of course, showed up in Solo. Uh, he's also in Enterprise, which I will be pointing out when we get there, or have pointed out when we get there, however you want to think of the, the tenses on that. And, of course, he showed up in D Space Nine, and he's just kind of a cool guy in general. So, Clint Howard, woo! I have a final thought of this episode, because the episode just wraps up. I don't have anything to say about it. Haha, it was a big threat. No, it wasn't. That is a very, very classic Star Trek thing. It's a big threat. No, it isn't. Or it's not a, it's, it's perfectly normal. Oh god, it's a big threat. Are the two most common plot lines we'll be encountering in TOS. But I want to talk about the padding. Now, I'm going to get some flack for this, but I honestly can't think of a better answer or word to describe this. Because, I have mercilessly laid into Voyager, TNG, Deep Space Nine, and Enterprise, as well as the movies, for padding. For having scenes that are there just to pad out the runtime. Sometimes we've gotten some really good stuff out of trying to fill out the runtime. But that's not padding at that point. Padding is when it is bad. Padding is gristle, to use the old example. If they add something and it really adds to the work, like the poker games over on TNG... Well, then that's not padding. That's just that's adding into what's there in order to try and make the episode better and also longer. Probably the worst example of padding I've ever seen it is probably Voyager with TKO. Or no, no, not TKO. Uh, the Fight. That was what it was called. TKO was a Babylon 5 episode. Anywho, so... There are... And I noticed this already, and I'm curious if this is going to keep being a trend. There are long sequences where it cuts between... There's the visual effect. Then it cuts to people staring at the screen. Then it cuts to another person staring at the screen. Then usually a third group of people staring at the screen. Then it cuts to the screen, and then things slowly change to show whatever's happening. I mentioned 3 minutes and 12 seconds of the escape scene. You know what the escape scene is? Wait until the energy's low, power up the engines to full, and then break away as quickly as you can. That takes 3 minutes and 12 seconds of slowly powering up and people reciting how how hot the engines are getting and the looking at the ship and then talking about this and then keep it going and then ready on your mark, Sulu, and then it just it's this whole thing. 
Now, I know I'm going to get someone who just says, oh, you're just impatient and dumb and stupid, and sure, fine. Whatever insults you want to throw, I don't even care at this point. I find myself wondering why it was done, though. Is this a style choice? Is this something that was done to pad out the runtime? Is this an editing choice, and they just didn't, they tried to use a different editing style? I don't mind movies or shows or anything that are slow, as long as there's something there, some significance or depth to it. I love a slow burn probably more than most people, honestly. And I, the, the scene I just mentioned, you could argue its validity, but the point is, in all three episodes I've seen so far, this approach has been used. And again, I find myself wondering if it was just to make sure that these are 44 minutes long. I don't know. We'll see if this continues going forward, and I'm actually very curious of it. Because it's something I don't remember at all, which is part of why I keep having this weird expression on my face. Because I don't remember the episodes being like... Visual effect. Visual effect. You know, I, I don't remember that being part of the franchise. Either way, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this. The first episode. <laughs> the third first episode. Uh, I'll see you next time, guys. Thank <sighs> you.